Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive 2014 Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Rudy, I have a big problem. I can't find a place to buy or sell gaming products. You know, I had that problem, too. Then I went to my DM. He told me about NobleKnight.com. Isn't that one of those internet stores? They are, but they're also a brick-and-mortar game store. Since using Noble Knight, I feel great! I can buy D&D and other tabletop RPG products from any edition, even stuff that's out of print. That does sound pretty great. Just pretty great? Get this, Noble Knight has all that, at a discounted price. And with Noble Knight, I can even sell them my old gaming products I'm not using anymore. Oh, wow. I've got to check it out. You don't have to ask your DM if NobleKnight.com is right for you. We're pretty sure it is, since you're listening to a podcast about the minutia of tabletop RPGs. People who use NobleKnight.com experience joy, having more money in their bank accounts, and lots of awesome gaming sessions. Seriously, why haven't you checked them out yet? Jeff Greiner uses Noble Knight, so should you. Well, my life has changed. It sure is, buddy. Soon, all our lives will be changed. So, welcome to the Ready, Set, Play uh, seminar. Uh, we are going to uh, talk a little bit about the new edition of D&D. We are going to walk you through the steps of character creation and let you guys create some characters. We've got some goodies for you up here that we'll be uh, letting you choose from in a little bit. Uh, and then later in the seminar, we're going to open it up to questions, let you guys come up, and if you have any questions about the game or you just want to talk about it, uh, we can also sign books and faction or, uh, faction selection cards. Uh, so uh, basically, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, throughout the presentation, I'm sure you're going to notice that we have some lovely pieces of art. Uh, these are all pieces of art from the Dungeon Master's Guide. So... Uh, <laughs> now, the, the people are the. the I'm still working on it. The last group did a really good job of booing and I. You guys have a lot to live up to. Uh, but these are pieces from the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, you, except for the uh, people who have already done this seminar previously here at the show, are among the first people outside of Wizards of the Coast to see these pieces of art. So uh, we'll be pointing out uh, <laughs> the best. I'm so happy with you. All right. Uh, so first of all, the starting lineup for the Wizards of the Coast R&D team. I'm Jeremy Crawford. I'm the code lead designer of the new edition, and I'm also the managing editor of the Tabletop RPG. Uh, also uh, with us over to my left is Bree Heiss, who did the beautiful graphic design of uh, all three core books, as well as the starter set. Uh, I'm actually going to be leaving you in the capable hands of Greg and Rodney, who can introduce themselves, but I wanted to be here at the beginning uh, to thank all of you, especially who participated in the playtest over the last two years. Uh, your feedback uh, has been invaluable in the development of this edition. Uh, so you can really think of this as uh, a labor that we were all in together. And 
something for all of us to be proud of and to cherish uh, as our beloved D&D. So thank you. Right now, so the winning Introducing number seven, power forward, Greg Mosland. Don't they do like the, the kind of the? <coughs> You've never watched sports before, have you? <laughs> <laughs> never seen a basketball game. <laughs> no, they have the strike a pose usually, like maybe like, a little like. <laughs> Super Smash Brothers, actually. <laughs> My name is Greg Bilslin. I'm a senior producer on Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, kind of what my role on the team is just making sure things get done. Everybody's communicating with one another, uh, unlike this fellow over here. Uh, my name is Rodney Thompson. I'm a designer on Dungeons and Dragons. I was a designer and rules developer on uh, the fifth edition of the game. I'm also the co-designer of Lords of Waterdeep. Not featured today are Mike Merles and Chris Tulak. <laughs> 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 this one. Yes, uh, Mike is out and about. You might catch him over in Wall D. Uh, Chris Tulak is our uh, head of organized play. He is currently wrangling humans over in Hall D to uh, play in an organized manner. Uh, or disorganized. Or disorganized. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so here's another piece of uh, art. You know, you guys, now you're just, now you're just sucking out. <laughs> Keep I it missed, up. I missed please. the last <laughs> session. <laughs> Much more wisely than the morning session. Uh, this is a piece of art uh, featuring the Shadowfell. So, uh, three pillars. Greg, you want to jump in and take this one? Sure. So, uh, when we approached the game, we had divided the game into kind of three different aspects that were useful in talking about the rules and the ways that the players interact. Uh, those are exploration, social interaction, and combat. And each of these has a little bit different role in the game, but we wanted to make sure that each got its just attention, that the game felt balanced in terms of the amount of time that you are doing, spending interacting, exploring, and uh, in combat. To, each has a little bit different support on the uh, in in terms of mechanics. So social interaction, or oftentimes role playing, has the least framework. And one of the things we observe from both the playtest process and our own experience is what is this is an area that is much more free flowing. You might have uh, characters who want to use their ability abilities or skills. Um, we might have things like uh, bonds and flaws and traits that tell you a little bit about your character or your NPC. But for the most part, um, the, the framework we created just allowed, um, well, it's called inspiration, and it actually allows a DM to reward players for role playing. And we'll actually get into that a little bit later when we start going through the steps of character creation. Um, exploration needed a little bit more framework to help the dungeon masters uh, with adventures. So we did things like define marching order um, and the phases of exploration. Uh, how to, uh, we went back to hex maps, for example, in terms of managing uh, exploration across wilderness. Uh, and yeah, then, many of the basics of this appear in the player's handbook, but you also see some fleshed out uh, exploration stuff in the dungeon master's guide. And in combat, as uh, we know, is one of the more structured aspects of the game. And part of that is that when you're in combat, PC's lives are more uh, at 
at stake than at any other time in the game. That, is, that lets you as the dungeon master uh, blame the dice and not yourself when the character dies. So that it's not just an arbitrary decision about, well, the, the, this is a pretty ferocious orc, so when he hits you, he kills you. Sorry. I love how Greg's example of arbitrary is clearly aimed at like, oh, and you die. Not like, oh, and you just instantly defeat the orc, right? <laughs> <laughs> and like, no, 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 the pieces are dead. I'm a dead master at heart. That's true, same here, same here. Uh, so, and also in terms of combat, um, don't ask me. <laughs> one of the, the things that we've got, uh, we're going to go actually a little, little bit more into depth about, uh, are the different components of the rules that we've streamlined and simplified to uh, try to accelerate the game. Yeah. Like another piece of art, uh, this, uh, I believe, is from, there you go. This, I believe, is a depiction of the Plane of Arborea, if you're familiar with Alright, so the basics. When we were designing the game, one of the things we wanted to do was streamline the core mechanics of the game, bring them down to one of the simplest expressions that we possibly could. And we wanted to do that for a number of reasons. First, we wanted to make sure that when you sit down uh, and spend some of your valuable time playing Dungeons and Dragons, that you can get through the most adventure that you possibly can. The idea here is that we are all, I mean, around the room, I see a lot of people probably close to my age or people who at least have families and jobs and things like that. Your time is precious and uh, when we sit down to play D&D, it should provide you the most exciting storytelling experience possible. So we wanted to streamline the game and speed things up so that you can really get into the action and keep things going. And by the time you get to the end of that one or two or four hour session, really feel like you've accomplished something. So in an effort to streamline the game and speed things up, we brought everything back to uh, three different types of roles that form the real core of the game. Now, none of these are revolutionary or even new to Dungeons and Dragons, right? They've appeared in previous editions of the game. But what is uh, maybe a little more new is that our approach is rather than have things uh, feed into subsystems or lots of derived stats, etc., all of these three roles uh, form the core of the mechanics of the game, and almost everything you do in the game is going to involve one of these three roles. And they all tie in very closely to your ability scores. So the first type of role is the ability check. Uh, whenever you want to do something in the game that uh, doesn't have a, like there's a chance that you might fail, uh, you want to probably make an ability check if it's something that is not directly harming another creature. So for example, if you are trying to balance on the deck of a ship as it rolls uh, on the sea in a storm, that's probably some kind of dexterity check. If you are trying to convince the guard to let you into a part of the castle that you're not supposed to be in, that's probably some kind of charisma check. If you're trying to batter down the door uh, using brute strength, that's probably some kind of strength check. These are all things that are not directly harmful to anyone, but there is a chance that you might actually fail. What about if you want to try to talk to the door to convince it to open? <laughs> I guess it could be like a mimic door. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Yeah. Actually, what's the, what is the mimic door called? Um, Oh, there's actually a creature that is like the door of the mimic. Mimic? Whatever. You're going to help to me, Greg. Uh, I might as well have a dummy. The, the, the trappers? Or the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, we've got the, the ceiling version, the floor version, there must be a wall version. My favorite is actually the spanner. Who here knows what a spanner is? Anyone? There's a couple of hands back there. Is that a power tool? It's a bridge, actually. The spanner is a sentient bridge. That, that comes to life and, and actually, I believe it's described as very talkative. And I'm not joking. These are from, uh, I think, either first or second edition. 
uh, never actually seen one in the venture. Anywho, cool story, right? Yeah, that's the monster. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the second type of role is the saving throw. Now saving throw is something that you do in reaction to an outside force that's typically trying to do something harmful or detrimental to you. You almost never initiate a saving throw role on your own, unless maybe by your actions you do something that might foolishly trigger a saving throw, like getting into a drinking contest with a dwarf, or uh, intentionally stepping on what is clearly a trapped floor ahead of you. But a... Uh, a saving throw is something that you do in reaction to something uh, harmful. Uh, these are things that the DM can use to determine whether or not you avoid a harmful effect. The attack roll is the third kind of uh, core roll you're going to make. Uh, these are pretty straightforward. Whenever you attack someone with a weapon or cast a spell that has a spell attack, you're going to make an attack roll. Uh, attacks typically are against AC, uh, actually not typically, attacks are always against AC, and so anything that depends on getting past armor or cover or shield or something like that is going to be uh, an attack roll. So a good example of like the difference between an attack roll and a saving throw effect are uh, like Ray of Frost. You can imagine when someone casts a Ray of Frost that the fighter can put up a shield, the, the, the ray would strike the shield and that would deflect it. On the other hand, if you cast a fireball because it creates a, like a sphere of fire that can wrap around the shield, that's something where we use a saving throw instead. Uh, all of these rolls come back to the same basic actual method. You're going to roll a d20, you're going to add a number, you're going to try to hit or exceed the target number, but the way you use them is going to be very different, and of course the bonus that you use uh, is going to be very different depending on your character. So a character might have proficiency in a certain saving throw and get a better bonus than if it was a different kind of saving throw or a different ability check. Um, the other thing that we really like about having everything come back to these three types of roles is that if you're a dungeon master, you can sit at the table and your players can describe what they want to do, and then really all you have to do is make a choice of which one of these three roles is the most relevant, is an attack, a check, or a saving throw, and then pick an ability score and you're done. And now you know how to adjudicate almost any improvised action in the game. And you might have to make a few more decisions about the improvised attack, how much damage it's going to do, does it impose a condition, but everything feeds back into this core system and it really helps keep things moving pretty quickly in play. Uh, this this is this from the monster manual. It, it, it is actually visible in the monster manual, although it might be put in, like it's just kind of in around the frame for the cloud that I'm right. Yes, it's a cloud giant castle. So I've got a, a question. How many dungeon masters do we have out there? And quite a few, about half the room. How many people that don't dungeon master just play? Okay, so for all of you people who play and don't Dungeon Master, we're going to show you all of the rules that you should never tell your Dungeon Master. For all of you Dungeon Masters, we're going to show you all of the ways that your players might be cheating. <laughs> uh, what Greg means to say is, uh, here, uh, we, we, over the course of the playtesting process and the development of the game, uh, identified uh, about five things that are... Uh, if not new to the game, are at least really important parts of the new edition of the game uh, that we want to highlight because they might be a little tricky if this is your first time playing or making a character from 4th uh, edition. Um, want to take advantage and disadvantage? Sure. So advantage, simply put, is when you roll 2d20 and take the higher roll. What that, when you get advantage, is usually the result of either an action you take that maybe a class feature gives you or because you are going to hide, or it's your dungeon master awarding that as a way to uh, give you an advantage in a certain circumstance. 
So you might imagine that you've jumped uh, off of the railing onto the chandelier, swinging down and landing on a bugbear. Well, that's a pretty you know, cool maneuver, and if you make your appropriate ability checks, uh, the dungeon master might give you advantage because the bugbear probably wasn't expecting that. Uh, alternative with the chandelier. Uh, by contrast, the uh, disadvantage is rolling two d20 and taking the lower result. And so that might be a case where you are trying to uh, nimbly sneak up on the bugbear and you accidentally step on a creak, creaking uh, board, and as a result, uh, the bugbear is not only surprised, but uh, the other three bugbears who are waiting for you now know where you are and take aim and fire and you have disadvantage. Um, sad vantage is when you have uh, advantage and you still miss. So, <laughs> you roll a two, and then the second roll is a three. <laughs> yeah, look for it, it's in the player's handbook, I swear. <laughs> Uh, I'm just the producer, I don't write the words. <laughs> <laughs> I could just say anything right now. Uh, advantage and disadvantage, actually, um, what they're really intended to do is sweep up a lot of the smaller bonuses that you might have previously seen in the game. Uh, they take care of all the little plus ones and plus twos, things that are circumstantial or uh, tend to kind of add up and you do a lot of math. This is just sort of a catch-all for any time there's an environmental effect or something that is really uh, giving you an edge. Uh, that is going to give you advantage. Something that it might be causing you to, um, uh, like outside of your own sort of skill or anything situational that's harming you, that can be disadvantage. Yeah, a good example is the poison condition, right. uh, which can be because uh, you might have had a few too many drinks, or because a uh, scorpion, a giant scorpion, has stung you. Or you drink uh, too many scorpions. Yes. Also a problem in D and D often. Um, so the, that inputs the, the poison condition, uh, which gives you disadvantage on ability checks, uh, attack rolls, it's sort of a, a catch-all for these penalties. The other thing to know about advantages and disadvantages is that they cancel each other out. So if you are getting advantage because you are hidden, but you're also poisoned, uh, you would just be at a straight normal attack roll. And even if you had advantage from two things, let's say somebody had cast a spell on you that gives you advantage and you're hidden, you don't get three d20 rolls, you just get two, or uh, if you then had those two and you were poisoned somehow, you, they would just all cancel each other out. It's just a way to manage bonuses and penalties. Right, so uh, we're talking a little bit about preparing and casting spells. Uh, we have kind of two major types of spellcasters in the game. There are casters like bards and rangers and sorcerers who they simply know some number of spells and can use their spell slots to cast those in whatever combination they want. Then there's another kind of spellcaster that is uh, like a cleric or a druid or a wizard. These spellcasters have access to a pretty large number of spells, but each day they're going to prepare a smaller subset of those spells that they can then cast throughout the day. Um, the reason I bring this up is because it's very similar in many ways to the way sort of traditional advancing spellcasting works, but it's different in a few subtle ways. Uh, and the biggest thing is that when I prepare spells, I don't prepare spells like one for one into spell slots. Instead, I'm preparing some number of spells as typically guided by your class, and then throughout the day, I can use my spell slots to cast from any of the spells on my prepared spell list in any combination that I want. So, if I have Magic Missile prepared and I have three first level spell slots, I can cast zero, one, two, or three Magic Missiles throughout the day. 
And basically what you're doing is you're burning the fuel of the uh, spell slot, but then you use that to, uh, uh, to create one of those spell effects, and it doesn't remove that, that spell from your prepared spell. This is a little different from traditional advancing, where when you fire off the spell, you then no longer have access to it. That's not the case anymore. And this makes spellcasters a little bit more flexible. Uh, it lets them pick a few combat spells, a few utility spells, and then use them in whatever kind of combination the adventure demands. Additionally, you can cast spells uh, using higher level spell slots than their spell level. So again, with the magic missile, I can use a third level spell slot to cast a magic missile even though it's a first level spell. Some spells have improved effects when you cast them using higher level spell slots. So to continue the magic missile example, when I cast magic missiles as a third level spell, it actually creates a couple of extra missiles that then strike the targets. Uh, when Fireball is a third level spell, when I cast Fireball using a fifth level spell slot, the damage goes up and it increases the damage uh, by a couple of damage dice. What this does for us is it allows us to make, keep many of your spells relevant uh, up through higher levels. It means that if you want to build a spellcaster like I'm a fire wizard, and so I really like using burning hands and fireball at lower levels, it means even at higher levels you can use those spells productively because they do scale up and you can use your higher level spell slots to use them. Uh, again, it adds a little bit to the flexibility. It also helps keep our spells chapter a little bit leaner than it would traditionally be. Uh, we no longer need any concept of like an improved fireball or things like that because those spells take care of themselves by scaling up with the spell swapping you use. Uh, if you're coming from third edition, another difference that I should point out is um, unlike in third edition where when you cast a spell, if you are higher level, it automatically improves. Spells only improve when they are cast with a higher level spell slot. It's not an automatic function of you as a spellcaster, it's a function of the slot that you're using. Again, think of it like fuel. You burn more fuel, you get a better effect. Shut down the concentration. I'm sorry, what? This is what I get for making fun of Greg a couple of times, kind of sabotaging this uh, seminar. Hey, we've done about six of these That's right true. now, so. Yeah, this is, this is number eight for me. Oh, yeah. So, anyways, do you want to do concentration? Or Absolutely not. Okay, so <laughs> concentration, that thing that Greg doesn't have. Uh, so, many of the spells in the game have a duration of concentration up to a certain amount of time. So, it might say duration, concentration up to one minute, concentration up to ten minutes, concentration up to an hour. Uh, concentration is a mechanic that we use for spells, and we also use it for some class features and other effects. That uh, basically the way it works is when you're concentrating on something, you if you cast another spell or do something else that requires your concentration, it ends the previous effect. You can effectively only concentrate on one thing at a time. Uh, we do this to prevent you from doing things like stacking up a bunch of buffs on yourself or on someone else. Or I cast web and then I cast cloud kill. No, those are both concentration spells. So when I cast the cloud kill, the web goes away. Uh, we're doing this to limit the amount of effects you have out there on the. Uh, the battlefield at the time. It also helps speed up your turns so that you're not managing, like, oh, okay, now I've got to handle the Evarts Black Tentacles and the web and the this and the that, right? And, or, like, I've got all these buffs on me and now I can do all these tons of different things. Um, it's a limiting factor to help speed up play and also prevent uh, some of the more egregious uh, abuse of spells that we've seen in the past. Um, all you players, remember I told you earlier, that's <laughs> the one to pay attention to. Yes. 
Um, there are some longer term spells that don't require concentration. For example, Mage Armor. We make an exception for Mage Armor, even though it's an ongoing long term sort of buff like effect, because we feel like Mage Armor is one of those spells that if you're sacrificing the, the spell slot to get it all day long, um, it's worth not forcing you to concentrate on it, and we would hate for that to drop because you're just doing a simple increase to your AC. Um, but there are many other long-term spells. In fact, most of the ongoing spells, uh, I would say, have concentration on them. Many of our summoning spells have concentration on them. So if I've summoned a fire elemental, I can't also cast web or uh, fly on myself, for example, um, because I have to concentrate on keeping that fire elemental present. Also, that's a pretty uh, fun example, too, because the conjure elemental spell, if you lose your concentration, the elemental will turn on you. So, <laughs> It's not exactly a safe thing. But Rodney, what if I have multiple spellcasters in my party? Can we still combine effects? I'm glad you asked, Greg. <laughs> I'd like to say we rehearsed that. <laughs> no, I, just, look, I just have nothing left today. Yeah, we're <laughs> Am I still speaking English? That's what I'm hoping. Anyways, if you have multiple spellcasters, you'll have multiple spell effects going with concentration at a time. That's totally fine. Uh, you might have a cleric and a druid in the party. Each of them decides to put a different buff on the fighter. That's totally fine, right? At that point, it's teamwork, not a single character overpowering things. And we're totally okay with that. So, um, and in fact, we think that's kind of a fun tactical thing where if you do have multiple spellcasters that are working together, like buff with the fighter, or, okay, I'm going to cast web, but you cast the cloud film. Like, you've got two characters using their actions and using their concentration to do that. That's okay, right? That's, that's teamwork, and that's... Kind of what Dungeons and Dragons is all about. But Rodney, what if we both cast the no, same spell on the character? <laughs> that is the one exception. Uh, our spellcasting rules do say, of course, that you can't have the same spell effect on you more than once. So you can't be double blessed, for example. Uh, another thing that's important about concentration is that uh, if you take damage when you are concentrating on a spell, you have to make a saving throw to prevent losing your concentration on the spell. Again, this is a little bit of a break that we put on spellcaster power, because if I am the wizard, I cast cloud kill out there, and it's completely devastating the bugbears, they're probably going to want to throw their javelins at me and try and break my concentration. Um, if I cast whole person on someone, I'm concentrating on that, and their buddy comes up and jacks me, that means that I might lose my concentration unless I succeed on my saving throw. Um, part of it is just this kind of makes sense in the world, right? I'm actually concentrating on the spell, and that might break my concentration. And then part of it also is to create some of the more um, interesting tactical and dynamic play by saying, okay, this is, you do need to protect your wizard when he's cast the spell out there because if someone comes and breaks his concentration, that wall of fire could drop and all of a sudden the ogres could come charging towards us where now they're resistant uh, or they don't want to go through the wall of fire. So uh, it's something to be aware of if you're concentrating on the spell. But I am going to make you talk about proficiency. Okay. Proficiency represents your expertise or knowledge in a particular, the use of a particular thing or in a particular area or skill. So uh, you might be proficient in armor or weapons, for example. And actually, armor is a slight exception, so we'll talk about armor first. Uh, armor you are proficient with, if you are proficient with armor, uh, when you wear it, you aren't at a disadvantage with your dexterity, constitution, strength. That just represents the fact that you are able to wear the armor more ably than other people. Um, the One of the things to know for spellcasters, though, is that a character uh, that is proficient with armor can spellcast in armor, but by contrast, if you're wearing armor like chainmail, uh, a wizard is encumbered by that, so he can't cast his spells effectively, so he's completely unable to spellcast. 
Where that's kind of cool, though, is it allows characters to create um, like a Cormirian war wizard who can actually gain proficiency in heavy or medium armor and spell cast. Uh, weapons, by contrast, and actually for the other aspects of proficiency, like such as saving throws or tools, you have a proficiency bonus, and this is a really important number because it goes up with you as you level, and it represents your advancement in that particular area. So, if you are a fighter who is wielding a uh, great axe, as you advance, you become more capable with that. that re that's represented by your proficiency bonus. If you're that a wizard and you're not proficient with that great axe, when you pick it up, you don't get your proficiency bonus. You're just less capable of wielding that compared to the fighter. Uh, the proficiency also carries over to tools. So the rogue might be proficient in a set of thieves' tools, and that represents their ability to pick locks and disable traps better than other characters. It doesn't mean another character can't attempt to do it, it just represents that particular edge that the, the rogue has. And there's all sorts of tools, some are more connected to your background, others are things you might use uh, as you're adventuring. Skills, many of you are probably familiar with, are a particular area that you can train in. Like it might be a knowledge of history or arcana where you've studied lots of books to gain that. Or it might be athletics where you've trained so that you understand better how to climb or swim. These are areas that you can learn compared to something like breaking in a door where it is just a raw strength check. There are people that just train to uh, break down doors. Cooling man. <laughs> so, if, if the Kool-Aid Man is in your world and takes, a, takes the fighter on as an uh, initiate, then perhaps you can add the brakes door skill. You see before you the Kool-Aid Man, what do you do? Roll <laughs> <Bold> initiative. <laughs> yes, exactly. I took a long drink. The, la the last aspect of proficiency is saving throws. So saving throws are a little bit, represent a little bit more abstract thing compared to skills or weapons. These are, this represents the, um, the extra edge that a my particular class might have in the, its efforts to adventure. So the rogue, for example, might be proficient in dexterity saving throws. That's because the rogue has been hit by so many traps that they've attuned their, their dexterity to dodge out of the way uh, much better than the wizard or fighter. Uh, the, the wizard, by contrast, might have uh, proficiency with wisdom uh, saving throws, which means that the wizard has kind of attuned their mind to resist outside forces. Uh, yeah, something, uh, if you've played like, third edition, you'll recognize this concept as sort of wrapping up base attack bonus and saving throw progression is sort of all into one single progression. Uh, if you played fourth edition, this is a lot like your half level bonus that you've got to everything. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about in this section is the bonus action. Uh, if you played in our open playtest, you probably noticed that over time, as the playtest packets came out, we added a lot of class features and other things into the game that said something like, when you take this particular action, you can also do this other thing as a part of the same action. Uh, and that worked out okay for a little while until we added a few more and added a few more, and then by the end of the uh, playtest, it was like, okay, I make my attack, and then I do these other five things as a part of the same action. And the next guy goes, oh, no, only five? I do ten things as a part of the same action. So, uh, we introduced the bonus action for the uh, simple reason of we want to do it to speed up play and prevent you from stacking up lots of these sort of extra things on your, uh, on your turn. The way bonus actions work is that 
you only get a bonus action if something grants it to you. So like a class feature or a spell or a feat or something like that. Um, that's the only way you get a bonus action. And you can only take one bonus action and only on your turn. So no matter how many things are granting you bonus actions, you gotta pick one of them and you can only do it on your turn. So for example, the rogue has a class feature at second level called Cunning Action that says you can dash, disengage, or hide as a bonus action. So now that I've reached second level as a rogue, I now have access to this, it is granting me the bonus <coughs> action. But I gotta pick one of those three things, I can do that every turn. If I'm holding two light weapons, I can uh, fight with both of them. And the two weapon fighting rules say when you attack with one, you can use a bonus action to attack with the other one. So what this means is if I'm a rogue and I've uh, got two short swords, I've got to choose do I want to attack with both of my weapons or do I want to attack with one and then use my bonus action to disengage so that I can then move away from the guy that I'm fighting and have him not damage me. This is why it makes rogues really sort of cunning and uh, evasive in combat because they do have that ability. But at the same time, they also have the option of saying, okay, swing my main hand attack, I missed, I want to get my sneak attack, so I'm going to attack with my offhand attack. Um, it's pretty straightforward. One bonus action, only on your turn. Uh, if you find that someone's turn is taking a little bit longer than it should, it seems like they're doing an awful lot of things, check and see how many bonus actions they're taking because it is a, a limiting factor. And we have quite a few things in the game that grant bonus actions. Oh, you back? Sorry. Sorry. It's a dragon. Uh, I, I heard that you might be which appears in the Dungeon Master Pack, along with many, many other illustrated items. I appreciate the flying <coughs> Uh So, Adventurers League. Uh, the Adventurers League is our organized play program. Uh, we are launching it here at the show, so if you play any D&D here at the show, uh, in our Hall D area, you have been playing in Adventurers League. Uh, Adventurers League is a program uh, that consists of sort of three parts, and it's designed not only to give you lots of options for public play, but also allow you to take your character from one of these programs to the other. Uh, D&D Encounters is a weekly uh, store play uh, program. The way it works is that every week you can go to your local store, play for one or two hours through our ongoing storyline. Uh, right now it's Tyranny of Dragons. And uh, these actually, uh, D&D Encounters actually plays through our published adventures. So, uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, right? Horde? Mm -hmm. I always get two titles mixed up. So, uh, right now, if you go to D&D Encounters, you'll actually be playing through the Horde of the Dragon Queen adventure, which uh, you can also find here at the show. Uh, and the neat thing is that even though the encounter season only lasts for a few months, once you start playing in uh, D&D Encounters, you can advance as far as you can through that uh, period. If you want to keep playing that adventure, you can take that home and play uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen at home and continue advancing your D&D Adventurer's League character by continuing to play Horde of the Dragon Queen. We'll also have future storylines that right. are released and, connect, uh, and it will be connected to Adventurers League, such as uh, Tyranny of Wagons, the uh, sequel to Tyranny of Dragons. <laughs> those, those wagons are right. so brain fried, I can't. It's all punchy, this is going to breathe. But everyone's smart. It's true. We are going to have uh, these having these storylines come around every so often that are connected to the Adventurers League so that people that are playing them can actually uh, feel like they're having an impact on the world. Right. Uh, so the next uh, aspect of this program is D&D Expeditions. Uh, if you played any of the four-hour events or if you played Devi uh, Defiance and Fawn here, these are part of D&D Expeditions. 
If you played any of our previous living campaigns, like Living Forgotten Realms or Living Greyhawk, this format's going to be very familiar to you, right? It's the four-hour session. It's typically a self-contained adventure. Uh, these are going to debut at conventions, but then they will be available for store play, so they are um, also meant for public play as well. Uh, these are going to be sort of a longer, more involved experience than a single D&D encounter session would be, uh, and you're going to find this is, uh, again, very similar to the living campaigns. D&D Epics. Uh, the first D&D Epic actually is debuting in about four hours. No, less than that. In about two and a half hours. Is anyone here participating in Encryption and Encrypt Garden? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right, the very first D&D Epic is two and a half hours from now. It is going to be lethal. That's going to be interesting. Uh, anyways, so D&D uh, Epics are meant for convention play. They are major events where we have uh, 100 tables, 700 players uh, playing simultaneously, and everyone's playing the same adventure, but working towards a coordinated goal. So basically what's happening at every single table is feeding into a central system that is determining the outcome of what's happening. It's, uh, it's like the interactives if we were played in, like a battle interactive or uh, uh, things like that in previous campaigns. Um, D&D Epics uh, are, or the first D&D Epic is debuting here at the show. Uh, you'll also be able to play Corruption in Garden if you're going to DragonCon, Fan Expo Canada, or PAX Prime. Uh, I think all three of those conventions are Labor Day weekend, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, that will be the first, uh, the, the debut, or the introduction of the Epics. And then as we go forward in time, uh, each year we'll have one or two of these Epics that serve as major events in the campaigns. The neat thing about Adventures League, as I've uh, spoken about before, is that if you start a character in D&D Encounters, you can take that character and you can play it at home as you continue Tyranny Dragons, or you can play in D&D Expeditions with that exact same character, you know, then bring that character to D&D uh, Epics. We're trying to make it so that you can play that character and advance that character across all of these different ways, so whatever's the most convenient with you, whatever you want to basically do with your character, you can. Um, there are obviously some character creation guidelines, but the biggest restriction is always going to be are you at the appropriate level for the adventure that you're going to be playing, because all of our adventures are sort of tiered by, uh, by levels. And you can actually find the Adventures League Player's Guide on the D&D website. Uh, it has character creation guidelines as well as other uh, information on how to get involved. Ooh. Uh, 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 I believe. Yes, that, is that, that looks like a director. It's really small on my screen. So, one of the big things that we're introducing uh, for organized play uh, in the Adventures League and also across uh, our major storyline is the idea of factions. Factions are organizations that uh, you can join uh, with your player or with your character in uh, the Adventures League, and these are all organizations that exist in the world that uh, come together for a common goal. And uh, basically, as a member of this faction, you can advance the goals of your faction through play. Uh, each of these factions uh, has their own sort of motivations, their own modus operandi, and they have uh, philosophies that uh, are unique to those factions. You're probably, if you're a uh, Forgotten Realms fan, you probably notice that there are a couple of factions up here that are noticeably different from one another in their way of behaving or their alignment. Uh, while it is true that the factions all have different goals and different methods of operating, they are all still working together towards the common goal of protecting the world from the major threats. So in the case of Tyranny Dragons, from Tiamat, her Dragon Horde, and the Cult of Dragon. Because it turns out that Tiamat being in the world is as bad for the Zentarum as it is for the Harpers. Right. <laughs> if there's no one left to shake down, 
that's not good for the students. Uh, so we're going to explain what these factions are just a little bit here. Um, today, after we finish this presentation, you guys are going to come up and have the option to pick one of the faction folders up here. Uh, this gives you a few uh, goodies related to your faction. It includes a welcome letter and a little bit of information about that faction. So each of you is going to get to choose one of these uh, that you can use for your character. Um, it's, it's important to note that your character doesn't have to necessarily be the faction that you end up picking here. If you pick one, you find that that maybe doesn't quite align to your character, but that's okay. You pick whatever you want. You can also be, have, be unaligned, but there are certain benefits that come with being a member of a faction. So if you're participating in Adventurers League, you gain renown as you participate in Adventures, and your factions acknowledge that renown and uh, will raise you up within the ranks, up to very high ranks in which you'll get benefits uh, and perks. Right. Uh, you want to solve me on this? Sure. Uh, so, while each of these, uh, the Harpers are sort of associated typically with bards and wizards, although none of these factions have any class requirements. So you could be a rogue Harper, maybe more of a spy type. Uh, the Harpers believe in uh, using their power to spread freedom, both in terms of uh, liberty of action and liberty of thought throughout the Forgotten Realms. Uh, they do this through more covert means, infiltration and spying. Uh, they operate from the shadows, though they still are closely uh, connected and, and communicate through uh, these cells or pockets. The, they also believe in the acquisition of knowledge uh, and arcane lore to help uh, bring about change. So they, they don't want to see knowledge in the hands of uh, villains and criminals and despots where it could uh, cause and bring about tyranny. Uh, the next faction is the Order of the Gauntlet. Uh, this is probably our most religious-oriented uh, faction, so they have strong ties to communities like uh, Torm and Helm. Uh, the Order of the Gauntlet, uh, their big thing is that they want to be armed and vigilant against the forces of evil. They're very sort of defensive. They're the, the guards on the walls uh, of, of uh, the world uh, fighting against the forces of evil. They, their big thing is that they want to identify evil threats uh, like secretive power groups and cults, inherently evil creatures, fiends that have made their way into the world. They want to identify those creatures and those, those threats, and then they want to defend against whatever they might do. Um, they're big on enforcing justice, and they're also sort of a reactive faction that they uh, they believe in bringing retribution for evil actions. So maybe they're not quite as proactive. They don't necessarily go out there and seek out uh, someone who might have the potential to do something evil. But when an injustice is done, when someone has acted in an evil way, they repay that uh, harm tenfold. Uh, basically, it's it's a very uh, a very big focus on retribution and. Uh, and also on defense against ongoing evil. A lot of paladins and clerics, obviously, in this faction, Honest. monks as well, but again, no, no class restrictions. The Emerald Enclave is the correct faction. That's right. And it <laughs> is typically populated by druids and rangers and isn't saddled with the uh, strictures of an organization or civilization. Uh, these are typically uh, characters, uh, individuals that uh, roam the wilderness and help travelers survive the dangerous creatures of the wild. Uh, they're also interested in maintaining the balance between uh, civilization and nature. They don't want to see either one go out of control. They don't want to see civilizations that are uh, cutting down 
forests and killing the treants and dryads, and then those creatures take action against the town to try to wipe it out. They try to figure out how to maintain a balance between the two. They don't be. Yeah, we're a bunch of dirty heavies. <laughs> Gretchen Morgan, by the way. <laughs> they all wear Birkenstocks. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so the Lord's Alliance, uh, this is the faction that I actually chose for my Adventurers League character, uh, Valerio Valdoza, if you ever catch me at a convention. Um, the Lord's Alliance, they are composed mostly of nobles and the rulers of towns and cities throughout the Forgotten Realms, but also especially the Sword Coast. Um, their goal is to ensure the safety and prosperity of cities and towns and other settlements, other points of civilization uh, throughout Fairhaven. Um, they want to maintain a strong coalition uh, against the forces of chaos. They, they fight against chaos because they don't want it to bring down uh, what civilization has established. Um, they also have, I think, have the largest like, military force as well. Yeah. Uh, the largest military force. Uh, they're very proactive. Uh, they believe in seeking out threats to civilization and eliminating them. Uh, they are always on the watch for anything that might be subversive or trying to uh, bring down, like, there's a, a cult trying to infiltrate um, a city government. They're going to seek out that cult and expunge them before they can do any lasting harm to uh, the town. Uh, they are very focused on bringing honor and glory to their leaders and to their own homes. So, for example, a member of the Lord's Alliance from Waterdeep might be out there adventuring to further the goals of not only the Lord's Alliance, but also to help you know, benefit the city of Waterdeep as well. Uh, the Lord's Alliance is also probably one of the most diplomatic and uh, politically oriented factions. They operate a lot within the courts of kings and other rulers. Uh, and like they basically, if you were in like uh, Cormier, for example, you probably find Lord's Alliance members uh, all throughout Suzale. Yeah, all throughout Suzale because it's very focused on sort of secular leadership and also you know knighthoods and kingdoms and stuff like that. So. Uh, that's more or less the Lord's Alliance shtick. Very uh, awful. As Rodney mentioned earlier, the Zentarum is an organization known throughout the realms, uh, but it's really just misunderstood. Yeah, they're misunderstood. The most evil curious of our organizations. <laughs> they believe in the accumulation of wealth and power, and uh, sometimes that uh, might mean being a bit tough on folks, um, but they also have a really strong connection to one another. So they watch out, you watch out for them, and they watch out for you. A bit like the mafia in that respect. Um, well, as long as you don't cross them. Uh, otherwise, um, they do still align with these factions, though, somewhat begrudgingly at times, because there is an interest in stopping groups like the Cult of the Dragon from just raining chaos down upon civilization, because uh, if trade routes are interrupted, well, then there's no trade routes to smuggle on, and you can't get your poisons from one place to the other. So It would be unfortunate if something were to happen. Exactly. So that's a little bit about our factions. Yes. This is a lich. Yes. Actually, the cover art for the Dungeon Master's Guide, although it's the sort of full piece yeah, there. Full wraparound piece. Okay, so. Happy OT. OT of the So, uh, here's how the rest of this uh, seminar is going to go. Uh, first, we're going to uh, allow you guys to come up and get your uh, faction folders here in a second. 
Uh, please pick only one uh, because we need to have enough to last us the rest of the weekend. Uh, you're going to get a faction folder. We have some character sheets. Uh, we have uh, some DCI cards in case you don't have a DCI number already. Uh, we also have some of the uh, uh, the activity cards here, the faction activity cards, which Craig will hold up. Um, these are uh, things that you can do throughout the course of the convention to uh, gain a little bit of a uh, an edge. I think you can get a, uh, a roll on a table. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. If you uh, complete a certain number of achievement, achievements, you'll get a bonus if you turn into headquarters and potentially magic items for your Adventures League character. Uh, one thing I will point out is that one of the achievements that you can do on this card is get a signature from a member of R&D, and that's Greg and I, so uh, I highly recommend if you're doing this, uh, this activity, uh, now would be a great time to get us to sign those. So what we're going to do is you're going to come up and get this stuff. Uh, once everybody's taken a seat, I'm actually going to walk through the character creation process very briefly, touching on each point in the process and then identifying some of the options that are available to you. I'm also going to call out some of the things that are slightly different about making an Adventurer's League character as opposed to making just a character for a home game and highlight a few of those rules. Um, once we're done with that, uh, we're going to open it up to Q&A. If you want to come up and ask questions, we'll be happy to answer any of them. If you just want to come up and talk about the new edition or you know, tell me about your character or whatever, that's totally fine. That's um, totally cool. It is totally cool, actually. Um, we also uh, are happy to sign faction cards, like I said. We're happy to sign books if you'd like. We have a um, copy of the Monster Manual. We have a copy of the Monster Manual up here that you're welcome to come take a look at during that time. Um, but uh, I think for right now what we're going to do is, uh, guys in the front row tables, if you want to come up and get your faction folders first, these steps of character creation, uh, I'm gonna, it's going to be a pretty brief overview of this. Uh, if you guys want to start making your character, if you're already familiar with the rules, feel free to go ahead and start doing so. But I'm going to touch on all the major points of character creation and highlight a few of the options that are available to you. Um, we have copies of the basic rules on every table. Uh, if you need an extra copy, we do have a few extra that we can uh, bring out to you. Just uh, throw up your hand and Greg will run one out to you. Um, the one thing I do have to say is please do not walk off with copies of the basic rules or with pencils. We need to have those for future sessions, so please uh, don't take those with you. They're, they're free. You don't need to steal. Yeah, you can just kind of free them all. <laughs> we totally, uh, totally allow that, but yeah. we just don't have a lot of printed copies. In Milan Clay says don't tell trees. <laughs> okay, so character creation. The first thing you're going to do when you create a character is you're going to choose your race. Uh, if you're using the basic rules, the options available to you are the dwarf, the elf, the halfling, and the human. Uh, if you have a player's handbook, you can make characters uh, that are dragonborn, gnomes, half elves, half orcs, and tieflings. Something that's a little bit different about this edition of D&D uh, is that some of these races have a sub-race choice in them. So, for example, if you're choosing dwarf, you can also or you also choose whether you're going to be a mountain dwarf or a hill dwarf. If you're choosing elf, you choose to be a wood elf or a high elf or a drow. If you're choosing halfling, you choose to be a stout halfling or a lightfoot halfling. Uh, so when you're choosing your race, you might want to take a look at these choices because that might inform uh, the next choice you're going to make, which is your class. Uh, your class is obviously your class. It's, everyone here has probably played D&D before and knows what a class is. But in the basic game, uh, we have available the cleric, the fighter, the rogue, and the wizard. And then if you have a player's handbook, uh, you also have access to the barbarian, the bard, the druid, monk, Paladin, Ranger, Sorcerer, and Warlock. Uh, all of these classes are perfectly legal in Adventurer's League play. 
Uh, if you're using the player's handbook, I also want to point out that uh, all of these classes have a, at least one really big choice point inside them that uh, gives you a, a direction for your character that sort of flavors that class uh, in a unique way for you. So for example, if you are making a cleric, you can choose a divine domain at first level. This represents sort of the nature of the deity that you follow or the faith that you follow, and also reflects the kinds of class features and spells that you get back from your deity, your granted powers. Um, if I'm making a cleric of the life domain, I am obviously probably worshiping a god who is uh, associated with nature and vitality and life and healing. So I get some extra healing spells, I get some increased potency to the healing spells that I cast, and I get a lot of uh, class features that are really focused around that sort of healing and restoration and vitality type abilities. Did you mention in the basic rules that Cleric only has the one domain right. available? And yeah, in the basic rules, each of the classes only, the, this choice point is already chosen for you. If it's the player's handbook, you'll actually be able to choose from these uh, different options. Uh, but yeah, so like that's a life cleric. If I choose a tempest cleric, for example, a cleric of the tempest domain, uh, obviously I'm worshiping a god of storms and thunder and lightning, a Thor type uh, uh, type deity. And the kinds of spells and abilities I get back are things like I cast, you know, lightning bolt, or I can maximize my lightning damage, or thunder damage, uh, every so often. So uh, these choice points exist in all the classes. Uh, they're a little bit different for each class. So a cleric is using divine domain. Fighters choosing a martial archetype, uh, paladin is choosing the kind of oaths he or she is going to swear. Uh, but when you're making your character, you might want to look ahead. Most classes make this choice at second or third level, but some, like the cleric, the sorcerer, and the warlock, all make that choice at first level. So you'll want to take a look at uh, those choice points inside your class. Uh, it might inform the kind of decisions you're making about race or about uh, ability scores. Because, for example, in the fighter, if I choose to play a champion, that's not really going to affect the abilities for assignment that I make. But if I choose to play an Eldritch Knight, I might want to put a good score in intelligence because the Eldritch Knight actually gets some spellcasting ability. So, once you've chosen your class, the next step is to describe your character. And this encompasses not only describing your character's physical appearance and mannerisms, it also includes uh, describing your character's uh, alignment and the languages he or she knows. Uh, the big piece of describing your character, and something that's a little bit new for 5th edition, is the choice of background. Uh, everybody's going to choose a background, and your background describes who you were before you became an adventurer. Uh, I'm going to bring up the Hermit background, because it's one of my favorites. So you can take a look up here and uh, see what I'm talking about here. Uh, so every background includes a little bit of story text. This describes who you might have been before you became an adventurer. It just serves as a jumping off point for you to uh, come up with that story element for your own character. So for example, as a hermit, I might decide, okay, I'm, I'm sort of a religious hermit. I've gone out to live on my own for sort of meditation and religious reasons. Alternately, I might decide that, no, I'm a hermit because I was exiled from the city, and so I'm, I'm forced out of society, and that's a very different kind of hermit, a very different kind of isolation. So uh, it's going to be up to you to decide what flavor your background takes for you. But there's some suggestions up in the, uh, uh, in the first intro text. Uh, following that, every background uh, gives you two skill proficiencies. This represents the kind of skills and, and knowledge that you picked up uh, in your life up to this point. Uh, typically, they reflect the kinds of things that you did as a uh, person with this background. Um, you also have the option of an equipment package. This is the stuff that you've collected in your life up to this point. 
many of the backgrounds also offer a selection of tool proficiencies or languages or some combination of the two, again reflecting the kind of knowledge that you picked up in your life up to the point where you became an adventurer. You'll notice over here on the right-hand side, there's a couple of random tables. Uh, these uh, are tied to your personality traits and your ideal, your flaw, and your bond. Uh, these are things that we've added to the game that are short phrases or sentences that are designed to help you flesh out your character's personality and mannerisms, uh, ideology, behavior, etc. They're really there to guide the way that you role-play your character at the table. Um, but more than that, we, we think it sort of uh, adds an extra dimension of depth to your character. And so each of these uh, backgrounds comes with some suggestions for all of these things. Uh, you can use them, you can roll the table randomly, you can pick, or you can use that as a jumping off point to pick your own. But I want to highlight a few of them. So your ideal is the thing that drives you to be an adventurer. This is why you're out there in the world going on adventures. So, uh, I made my adventurer's lead character the other day. I'm playing a, uh, a member of the Lord's Alliance. So my ideal is peace through law. My character believes that uh, peace and prosperity can only achieve, be achieved by uh, abiding by law and order. And so he goes out in the world and fights against the forces of chaos and destruction to prevent that from unraveling the peace that society has created. So that's where I become uh, an adventurer. Your flaw is exactly what it sounds like. So your character's Achilles heel or fatal flaw. Uh, this is typically something that maybe gets you in trouble or is detrimental to you as an adventurer uh, because you know, not everybody's perfect and every, every good hero has something that they have to overcome. Again, using my character as an example, my character's flaw is I am appointing myself judge, jury, and executioner. So uh, when I see something that is, uh, in my opinion, against the law or uh, anti-civilization, I take the law into my own hands. As you can imagine, when you're trying to maybe deal with uh, Zentarum agents or uh, the grayer parts of society, that can get you in trouble. Typically, your flaw is something that uh, might uh, be occasionally harmful to you achieving your goals, or at least harmful to you achieving your goals easily. Uh, the last one is your bond. Your bond is a tie to something else in the world. Typically, it's associated with a person, a place, an event, or an object in the world. This is just something that ties your character to the setting and makes your character part of the larger world. Uh, it can be something like, I will defend the city of Waterdeep against the forces that are arrayed against it. Or it could be something like, uh, I will do anything to protect my family from harm. Or it could be something like, I'm the sole survivor of an ambush that wiped out my entire soldiering troop. Um, this is totally up to you how you want to tie yourself into the setting, but it sort of implies that your character is part of a larger world and larger history. Now the flaw and the bond especially are important when it comes to tying into our inspiration system. Uh, this is something that we're introducing in this edition of the game to sort of help promote uh, playing up your character's more negative aspects and then rewarding you for that good role playing. Uh, the way it works is, whenever you allow your flaw or your bond to impact your character negatively, maybe by you know, making a decision that isn't so great for the party but totally is in keeping with your character's flaw, the Dungeon Master can award you inspiration. Basically, this is a reward that the DM give you to say, hey, you have, you have, you have role-played out your characters for <coughs> even though it may not have been the best uh, and most optimal decision. Here's your reward uh, in the form of inspiration. When you have your inspiration, and it's a binary thing, you either have it or you don't, you never stack up multiple inspirations on top of each other. When you have it, you can expend it to get advantage on any attack roll, saving throw, or ability check. So the idea being is that basically you have been rewarded by your DM for good role playing. That'll give you a little bit of an edge uh, later. 
because you can't stack these up though, you probably want to use them and then obtain them again. So it's sort of a constant flow of, like I'm playing out my character's personality, getting rewarded with inspiration, and then succeeding at a later point. Um, the other cool thing about inspiration is when you have your inspiration, you can give it to other players at the table if they don't have theirs, uh, instead of spinning it yourself. So basically, if someone at the table is trying to do something really cool or fun or exciting or something that's just really good for the story or even just something that you think is really, really important and you have played your character well, you can give it to the other player at the table because it is something that we want to sort of say, like, okay, maybe you did something that the other players at your table weren't super thrilled about, uh, but you can give them your inspiration as sort of a... Here you go. I'm sorry, I totally executed that Zentarum agent that we were trying to talk to. Uh, so that's uh, that's the next step is, is your character description. The last thing you need to know about is equipment. Uh, you have two options when creating an adventurer's lead character. You can either um, choose from the starting equipment packages that are found in your background and your class. Uh, the class one actually has a few choices within it that you can make uh, when picking your starting equipment. But these are pre-selected packages that you can choose. The other option you have is you can uh, take the starting wealth option, which you can find in the basic rules and also in the player's handbook. This is where you just get gold and you can use it to buy uh, equipment before you start uh, adventuring. Uh, the one thing you need to know about making an adventurer's lead character, though, is that if you choose the starting gold option instead of the package option, instead of rolling the dice, you just get the maximum amount of gold. So it's like you'd roll the, the highest number on every uh, on every die. Uh, it's also worth pointing out, and if Jeremy were here, he would say this. It's also worth pointing out that the equipment packages are built to occasionally uh, actually be a slightly better deal than buying your starting uh, equipment with gold, because we try to focus on like just giving you what you need as opposed to forcing you to go on a shopping trip. Create characters as quickly as possible. Right, exactly. So uh, don't feel like you have to buy your gold to get the most, or buy your equipment with gold to get the most out of it, because the packages do occasionally produce uh, results that are. Uh, possibly unobtainable through simply buying their weapons. So that's that's the basic overview of the process. You guys have the basic rules out there in your players' handbooks. Um, at this point, if you have any questions, you can feel free to come up and ask. We're happy to answer those questions. Uh, we will also be happy to sign any more of the um, uh, faction cards if you want us to do those. We can sign books uh, if you'd like to sign those. If you just want to come up and talk about the game and your experiences with it, that's totally fine too. Yeah, we also have a monster manual and a player's handbook up here if you want to flip through them. And if you are still feeling like, whoa, where do I start? Just start on those first few pages of the basic rules where it's step-by-step creation. It tells you which chapters to go to. It's really easy to walk through doing that. Yeah, we'll be happy to come out there and give you a hand as well if you're struggling or if you have a lot of questions. But do feel free to come on up here and ask anyways, okay? Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.